Rock Harbor. Good to see everybody. Page 41 in our study guides, The Matchless Savior. What a great topic to be talking about this morning. The central truth is that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. It's irrefutable, right? And that's that's the basis of our of the topic is uh, he's matchless, um, meaning that there's nobody in the same category as Jesus. No, nobody's in the same category. And I heard it put this way uh, recently in a discussion that you know, as we've learned and, and you know as we're saved and we we really learned this at a young age. Whether you're in church or not, you know there's this. There's this good and there's this evil, and it's always depicted in like movies and cartoons. You know, uh, you have this 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 good thing over here, but then you have this evil thing over here, and, and evil has to be overcome with good. In in most cases, movies are crazy nowadays, though. Uh, so what um, what we we kind of get this idea in our mind that you got Jesus over here on this side, and you got the devil over here on this side, and over the years we kind of put them. In this kind of categorization of of good versus evil, Jesus is the good one, devil's the bad one. Devil's got this power over here. Jesus got this power over here. But what we don't realize is, is if you really look at it properly, that the devil is not in the same category as Jesus in terms of if if you want to put it in terms of outright power. I mean, the devil was the devil was cast out of uh, out of heaven by angels. God didn't have to do it himself. I mean, if you, were, if you want to put him in that category, you put him in that category, but there's nobody that matches up with Jesus. It's not even in the same category. It's far above. When, when we're talking about the struggle between good and evil, it's a struggle of the flesh. It's not a struggle of power versus power. Does that make sense? God is far above. Jesus is far above anything out there. Nothing can match our Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing. And that should make you feel good this morning. I mean, there, there's a he, he's our hope. We put everything in him. We put all our eggs in that basket, right? But there's so much more to it than, than just that. But, you know, talking about being matched, it's good to know that the one that I'm trusting in this morning, especially with the crazy stuff that's going on today, and, you know, there's always rumors of something now. Always there's a rumor of this, there's a rumor of that. I just want to know that I can turn to him and trust him, and I can. And no matter how bad it gets, I can still trust him to get me through. No matter how bad it gets. Uh, Nate and I have been talking about this. It's like we we still got to stand on the word. We still got to trust in him. And we've got to, and I think this lesson uh, this morning is a great reminder that there's no one that compares to our Savior. There's, There's no one or nothing that can compare to him. So under Let's Get Started, it says the busyness of life, in the busyness of life, everyone seems to be short on rest. I stopped right there. I literally stopped right there. I was like, wait a second. Somebody else needs to teach this message and let me come out there and listen to this because this was for me. I said, you know, the busyness of life. I said, man, everybody can deal with that, right, or uh, uh, relate to that. Everybody's busy. Everybody's short on rest. At some time or several times in the past few days, you have likely uttered the words, I'm tired. For me, less than 24 hours. (laughs) In the spiritual realm, when we are trying to earn favor with God, we will be spiritually tired. Why is that? You can't earn favor with God. Because you can't do it. 
It's not, it's not doable. You, you cannot earn the favor of God. It has been gracefully given to you. So there's nothing that you can do, nothing at all, under, under any circumstances can you do, because it, it, it's, not even a, it's not even a thing. Does that make sense? It's like it's not even a thing trying to earn favor with God. Everything that he's going to do, he's already done for you. And he showed it in his son, Jesus Christ, by what he what he done for us. He showed his love. So there's nothing else. Can't earn the favor. So that makes us spiritually tired. And I think we've all probably tried that at some time or another, trying to earn favor with God, or maybe caught ourselves doing things, thinking, you know, he'll be proud of me. Or, or you know, we're trying to kind of work our way up the ladder because we got that kind of mentality as, as uh, humans that, we got to work our way up that that ladder, so to speak. And we sometimes we treat God the same way. We treat the the Christian lifestyle a lot like a corporate lifestyle. It's like you know, I'm going to do this and this, and I get promoted, and then I get promoted to this, and then I get to make more money. You've heard me talk about that often. That often we attach God to financial prosperity, and that's the way people see Him. It's just the God that gives all those things, but. When you, when you really look at what often we try to do, it's, it's um, I don't know, I really don't even know the right word to put it. I would say at times I've embarrassed myself with the things that I was trying to do to earn favor with God. I didn't realize I was doing them, but I was doing them. Trying to get on the inside, trying to get a little extra, thinking that that was going to work. But he's already given everything to us. So he says we will be spiritually tired. But he calls us to rest by accepting Christ's work on the cross and seeking his peace in our lives. He is our Savior, and nothing can compare to him or to the rest he gives as we place our trust in him. The writer of Hebrews was concerned about his audience of Jewish converts to Christianity. Concerns had to do with their confidence. He knew his readers were tempted to place their trust in Judaism with its emphasis on Moses and angels, rather than on Christ. And that was really the big conversion point, was getting them to get out of that mode of, of Judaism in the Old Testament and, and the law and thinking, thinking that way, because that's the way it was. And then all of a sudden, there's this the, Christ comes on, onto the scene. He establishes a new covenant um, and, and a new relationship, a better covenant. We know that scripturally. And so there was this always this temptation for them to fall back into the belief of Judaism and that belief system. Which, in the early days of in Acts, in really in the first hundred years, in the first hundred years of of the uh, of the new established church, that was really one of the biggest problems. Is that there was this old idea, and they kept trying to graft the old idea in with the new system, and it kept causing issues. Uh, within two hundred years, you had an establishment of all kinds of other religions. Just two hundred years. I mean, we're, what, 2,000 now after Christ? 2,000? And so people ask, they're like, where do all the religions come from? It actually started within just a couple hundred years after Christ because people started grafting all these things into Christianity or what was the pure belief of Christianity, which was the belief in Jesus Christ. It's where um, uh, Catholicism come from. It was all these offshoots and all these new belief systems and new ideas started to spring forth. It, it was always interesting to me that not a lot has changed since then. People always coming into a new life in Christ, right? But still trying to merge the old ways and graft them into the new ways. And for 2,000 years, it hasn't worked. 
There's only one life in Christ, and that's it. And there's only one, there's only one individual that is lived through, and that's him. And so I think that's a good lesson for us this morning uh, to make sure that we're not trying to graft old ways into our new life. Right? The old, do, do we all agree? Do we all agree this morning that the old man is dead? Amen. Now, I think with a bit of work, we keep him down. But he's sneaky. He likes to be resuscitated. He likes to try to come back. So you understand when I mean old ways, I'm talking about that old guy. The guy with his old belief system and his old ideas, things that are not for you today. They're not any good. The devil will, he can't make you do it, but he sure does a, a handily job at trying to convince Christians that it's better to not give up everything. Come on, let him Don't give it all up. I mean, you can hold on to a couple things. And he'll use those couple things to reel you back to that old lifestyle again. So, can't have those things. You gotta, uh, there, there's a bit of temptation that we've got to work through. So he said, he sought to show his readers that they needed to place their confidence firmly in the Lord. Firmly. Because you remember, you got to remember, this was, a, this was a, uh, a learning experience because up to that point, it was about the priesthood. And the priesthood, and the sacrifices, and the priesthood took care of all of those things. They just had to bring the proper sacrifice. So there was uh, this uh, type and shadow of forgiveness or atonement. So they were atoned for for that time. When Jesus came, then they personally, personally could go before the Lord and receive the forgiveness that they needed. They could repent themselves. This was hard for them. This was a personal thing. So he said he was trying to, to get them to understand that this is not about that system anymore. You have to do it. You're the one that has to repent. You have to ask for forgiveness. Amen. And you have to, Come it's on. just between you and him now. But the world still looks at Jesus and says, well, he paid the price for me, so I don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of modern Christianity today. Yeah, I would yeah. say that. Yeah. They, they just think, well, he done it all for me, so I'll just go ahead and live like I want to because my sins are already forgiven anyway. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's not biblical. It's not biblical. It's, and that's twisted, too, because, I mean, if, if we think that, well, Paul said it. You know, if if we think this is a free a free pass to do whatever we want, I mean, he said, should should I keep sinning in light of this grace? God forbid. Should I should I keep doing these things? God forbid. We gotta stop those things. Okay, so let's keep moving. Okay, um, only in Him could they find the hope they needed to rest in the Lord amid severe trials. Uh, Pastor's been talking about this in really in in the months uh, leading up to. To this and I would say 2022 really in Rock Harbor Church has been in my view dedicated to practical Christianity practical Christianity like Christianity 101 like like the basics like this is what we're supposed to be doing and the thing that's so been so refreshing about that is we've needed it yeah. mm -hmm. I mean we've just absolutely needed it a wake-up call to basic Christianity, like coming back to prayer. You, and I feel conflicted about that because I think, well, it's not like I've necessarily given up prayer, but I've had to come back to prayer. Do you understand what I'm saying? I never actually got away from it, but I got away from it. I never really got away from certain 
certain aspects of Christianity, but when I rediscovered them, I found out I was far away from them. You understand what I mean? It's the difference between being fervent, being fervent, and then being in a place where we have forgotten what we had done and what had got us to that point. Dedication, devotion, a heart that wants to do things for the Lord, a servant's heart. Basics. Basic stuff. And I, and I guess I guess what I'm saying is, is that I, I felt conflicted because in a bit, I guess in a way, it's kind of ashamed of myself that I'd have to be reminded of such things. But we do. If I think I think if we could all just admit it right now and just be honest, the basics is good enough. It's good. It's good to know. It's good to be reminded of. And we need it desperately. I think it's like, like you're saying there in prayer being one thing, but it's not a thing. It could be an experience. Ah, yeah, right, yeah. And when you keep it an experience, that's refreshed. It's good. Because it's refreshing. It's an experience with God who you are. Yes. But it just becomes ritualistic. Yeah. Or kind of sort of what i got to do every day, you know? Sure. Then it's different. It is. And, and that can happen to anybody. You're exactly right. Yeah. And and knowing and, and just admitting that we're if we're there, if that's where we're at, admitting that, okay, that's where I'm at. That's that's where we're at. We've we've not been as fervent as we need to, or or we haven't prayed as much as we need to. Um I've I've looked at it a lot like I rem- I know I know what it's like to be in that prayer time, in that prayer closet. And the only thing I can think about is what is going on at that moment, which is just between him and I. And all of you know what that feels like. But I also know the feeling of being in prayer and had finished a full, thorough time of prayer and not remembering because my brain is thinking about everything else. I'm totally distracted. And, and really, we should not move from my prayer spot until we become undistracted. And, I mean, we should stay there until we get our full focus on God, until our heart is focused on Him. Because I believe a lot of things that are going on up here, it's just, just me, you know, from my own experience, a lot of things that are going on up here are a reflection of what's going on down here. We got too many, we got too many things that are going on in our hearts that are uh, taking us in different directions. So it's impossible to devote yourself fully to God in prayer because your heart is in another place. Not just your mind, but your heart. And so that's a warning. That should be a warning to us. That's why, that's why the basics have been good. They've been refreshing. Because as bad as they hurt, it's like, man, I should not be, I should not be in this place where I'm having to be reminded that prayer is important and, and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But since we are, would, can we agree that we're close to the end? Yeah. I think I'd rather be reminded now than to have to stand before God and answer for my lack. I'd rather be reminded now. I'd rather it hurt now than to disappoint him. Okay, so uh, practical Christianity. It's been great. This uh, This is, I think they should have put is there, this is a good message for us today. Our everlasting destination depends upon where or more specifically in whom we place our confidence. Agreed? Amen. Agreed. Okay, final destination. We all want to go where? Where do we not want to go? 
Right. And we understand that it's not just a simple... And I've, just, I've sent this message out, and I'm not even going to get into this. But I read some scripture uh, yesterday uh, that was just devastating to me to see... And I say devastating in a way that it was so good for me as, a, as an individual. That this thing is not just... It is not. Listen. This thing is not just... I accept Jesus as my Savior, and then I just go and live life. No. I'm sorry. It is not like that. And, and it's shame on us if we've simplified it to that. If we've, if we've doned it down to the point where I, can just, I just do kind of what I, what I want to do, and I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and, and, and it's good enough. There's a lifestyle that is supposed to be lived in conjunction with the one that we serve. I'm sorry. The scriptures are there, and it supports it. It even supports this, and I'm not going to get into the details, but there are going to be a lot of people disappointed because we're going to be met. We're going to be met one day with the same mercy that we've been mercied and shown mercy to others. And I was like, wait a second here. Oh, wait a second. No, that's not right, because I accept you as Savior, and I'm good. That should be enough. There's some things that come with a lifestyle in Christ. And I can't imagine, after reading those scriptures and really looking at what they mean, and then coming to the realization that if I stand before him in this condition, this is not going to go well for me. I stand before him with unforgiveness in my heart towards other people. This is not going to go well for me. But I'm saved. Should be good, right? You might want to check your salvation and make sure it's what you thought it was. Make sure it's what you thought it was. There's a lot of people. I think this is where the disappointment comes from. I think this is why the scriptures tell us there's going to be a lot of people stand before him and say, I did all these things in your name. And he's going to call them workers of iniquity. And that, see, that doesn't even compute, right? You think, no, that doesn't even make sense. I'm not going to be in that category. That's not me. But when you start reading these scriptures about how he asks us to live, he's like, look, faith without works is dead. If you got faith, but you don't have a lifestyle that actually matches up with who you believe in, then it's dead. It's not even alive. And that's disturbing. <laughs> it really is. That just rakes at my heart. Like, wake up. This is not as simple as we would like to believe that it is. And that there are things in God's word that point us, saying, right over here, live like this. And people don't live like that. There's going to be a day, and I believe it's very soon, where he's going to separate everything, and then we're going to be held accountable. And so, and I'm not going to keep beating that drum, because we have a lot to cover this morning. Um, Nate and I talked about it, um, and I've talked to you about it. I've been very open, but like I, like I said, this has been the year for, for Rock Harbor Church. This has been the year of practical Christianity. It's been a year for practical Christianity. And, and coming back and mastering the things that are seem to be so small and so simple, but remastering them once again. All right, let's keep moving. Page 42, get our scriptures this morning. Haley, go ahead. Ephesians 2 9. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given as 
position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, through whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in the way could only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Three one. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as he served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truth God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house, if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day, while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. 4.1. God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. All right, thank you. All right, I'm going to try to run through this in a, in, a, in a feasible amount of time. i got 30 minutes, and I'm not talking about like running through and missing points, but I, I have got to get to section 3, okay? i got to. There's some stuff in section 3 that I really want to share with you this morning. Like It's very important. So I'm going to ask a couple questions as we go through here, but I'm going to kind of... I'm going to kind of buzz through so we can, we can get to that point. Hebrews 2.9 follows a passage where the writer cites Psalm 8.4-6, which describes the subjection of the world under humanity. However, while God gave humanity authority over the rest of creation, humanity itself is powerless. Limited and subject to thorns and thistles, that's in Genesis 3.18, humanity toils in working, chaffs at the struggles of life, and suffers through conflict, injustice, and other consequences of sin. Would you agree with that? Amen. Would you agree that the stuff that you're seeing today, every when you when you turn on the news or when you get information about the decay of of our world, do you agree that that is because of sin? Amen. Okay, listen. It's it is bad decision making, but it is it is the, at the root. Its root is rooted in sin. That's where it's rooted at. I want to blame people. Believe me. I want to blame people. I want to say, well, if you would have, if, if we could get somebody better in this, in this position, or we need to elect this person and do this, and I, I agree with democracy. I think it's a great thing. But I think what we all have to do is come to the realization this whole thing is rooted in sin. And until people repent, it's not going to get any better. Amen, come on. And I don't care how you swing it. Until people honor the Lord and repent, we're stuck. That's where it's at. All right. 
But this is temporary. The subjection of creation is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who came to bring redemption to all who believe. Jesus, for a little while, was given a position a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2 and 9. He took on human flesh to dwell among us, embracing the position of a servant. Then he suffered death for our sake. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Christ made atonement for our sins. While humanity and all creation now suffer under the effects of sin, Christ has made the way for all who believe in him to look forward to everlasting life. Because that's what we're shooting for, right? We all want to live eternally with him. That's the whole goal, is to live with him in eternity. Having restored humankind's lost dominion over creation, Jesus also restored its intimate relationship with the Father. Verse 10 refers to Jesus as the captain of salvation, a leader who opens the way for others to follow. Jesus leads his followers to the benefits of salvation and to the dominion planned for, the, for them. Jesus was made perfect through sufferings, but this does not refer to moral perfection, for he was always perfect. He's always been perfect, but in order for him to be the sacrifice that he needed to be for you, he had to suffer. He had to go through sufferings. It's, of course, it's not about moral perfection. He was perfect. Yes, absolutely. But he had to, in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice, he had to come here, come into the flesh, and suffer like man. Be crucified. An awful death. And then he, was, he became qualified to be, your, to be your savior. Not just that, though. Not just that. Um, but he was sinless. Total, we talked about this last week. He was sinless. There was no sin on him or in him. I, I mean, I, I, can't even, I can't even hardly understand how that worked because that ha that's a very powerful thing. He lived in the flesh. I mean, think about the things that you've endured in your life and the things that you failed at. Think about the times you were tempted and you didn't come through. You think, oh, I don't want to think about that. Well, for the sake of this, but he did. He was tempted with the same type of stuff that you and I were tempted with. You and I gave in, he didn't. Um, Pastor and I were talking about this. I, I still say this. We do not fully understand what, what actually happened when Jesus was tempted for those 40 days when the devil came to him and tempted him. I mean, this was a serious, serious thing that happened in the wilderness. He was tempted, and he, the things that he went through for that, uh, for that period of time, I cannot imagine what he went through on a personal level and that he had to refuse. He was hit with every thing imaginable. He didn't give in. He didn't give in. Now that's that's amazing to me. That's just amazing. Thank God. Thank you. That's right. Had he of the, the Yep. And and I also think too, he didn't send the, the devil didn't send no minions for that job. He didn't send no demons, he didn't send no imps. He did it himself. Which tells me this is also personal. That's the hate of the devil. That's the hate of the enemy. A lot of things you can read in between the lines there. Okay. Um, perfect means complete. Jesus completed his mission on earth by dying on the cross for our sins. Because of his death and resurrection, we possess a future hope and a present salvation. In identifying with humanity, Jesus made those who believe in him members of God's family. The writer uses Isaiah 8, 17 through 18 to picture the intimacy with God that Jesus brings to believers. Jesus' death broke the power of death and frees people from slavery to its fear. Amen. Amen. 
Through faith in him, we are no longer subject to the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. I encourage you to read that. And so while death will cause sorrow for believers, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, our sorrow is tempered with the hope of heaven. Yes, yes, we have to. Yes, we go through. We live in the natural body. It's going to decay and it's going to give up. But the, the ultimate hope is, is that as, as people that you, that you love and you care about, as they pass and you know they, they're in heaven, you know that that's where they're at right now and they're waiting on you. And one day there'll be a reunion day, right? Where we all come back together again. And that's, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine exactly what that's going to be like because not only are you going to, you're going to meet loved ones, you're going to meet uh, old family members, you're going to see the old saints, you're everything at one time. Let's talk about a reunion day. That's, that's more to take in than I, I can take in. Uh, the physical body can't handle something like that. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and was like every person except without sin. He could serve as our high priest. By experiencing temptation, he could empathize with those who are tempted. Acting as both priest and sacrifice, Jesus offered himself as the all-sufficient sacrifice to atone for the sins of all people. Well, and I think sometimes you've got to recognize what the Bible's doing here, too. When the Bible brings out these scriptures and it talks about him going through these things and having to go through these things, we, we as Christians, we use Jesus as our example to follow, correct? So here's, here's something to consider. There was not necessarily this, just because he was the son of God, he was, well, he, he was the son of God, so that's why he was able to be sinless. He just kind of had this superpower, and he just overpowered it. No. No, he was a, he was a human in physical form, and he had to endure temptation. So here's the thing I want to convey. If Jesus was able to overcome it and say no, you can too. Amen. Because he made it possible. He paved the way to be able to say no. He paved the way. And so I'm not just saying it's within your power. I'm not because it's not. Jesus paved the way and then established it and said, okay, I did it. Now you can do it. And so that raises the bar. <laughs> it raised the bar. I thought, man, I was like, sometimes I like it when the bar is low because there's like little expectation. You know, it's easier when there's little expectation. But see, when Jesus raised the bar, that raised expectation. So I don't have an excuse. If I'm going to believe in him as my Savior and, and tell him, I believe in you. You're my Lord. You're my, you're my God. You're my King. He's going to say, well, I mean, if that's the case, then I expect you to overcome some things. I expect you to get past it. I expect it. You ain't got no excuse. You've got the power. It's all been put in your corner. Don't give me that mess if you come and see me and you tell me, well, it was just really hard. Yeah, it was hard for him too. Well, you can't do this without Jesus. Nope, can't do it. You've got to have Jesus. You've got to get down at the altar and you've got to confess your sins. and You've got to accept him completely. Yeah. With faith. Yeah. All the way through, faith is going to play a whole big part of it. Yes. And if you don't have the faith, you don't have received Jesus Completely. You're not going to make it. Yeah. It's going to be, that's right, Jim. It's going to be hard. Let's go to section two. I got to keep reading. Greater than Moses. The expression holy brethren only appears here in the New Testament. It combines a term of relationship with one of consecration. 
Clearly, the author cherished the people to whom he wrote. The word wherefore and so connects this section with what has been just been said. Because Jesus took on flesh and endured struggles while remaining sinless, we can better appreciate his ministry as both apostle, messenger, and high priest. So that, I guess what, I, what the lesson is trying to say here is, is that he understands you because of what he went through, but you understand him better. You, you get that because a lot of what you're feeling today, a lot of what you're feeling today, a lot of the temptation that bombards you is the same temptation that bombarded him. Does that make sense? It's the, we can empathize, and that works both ways. So the author called the people to consider or think carefully about the apostle Jesus Christ. This designation refers to the fact that the Father sent him to earth to accomplish his purpose. The fundamental idea here is one of mission. Identifying Jesus as high priest highlights the sacrificial nature of his mission. Sacrificial nation, uh, nature of his mission. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, it was the whole thing was sacrificial. But if he did not come for himself. He came for you. Right? Yeah. There, was, there wasn't this inclusive deal where it was just about him. He made this about you. He said, I'm coming for you. Well, that kind of that kind of set the tone and set well, set the stage for the in the entirety of our lives from here on out. Sacrificial. Being a servant. Which to me, when you really look at the thing that we I don't know you. I don't know exactly what you do in your personal life. But I'm going to say that just judging by the scriptures and the fact that Jesus set the stage for servitude, servitude, being servants. He talks about this in the New Covenant. That the whole lifestyle of Christian would be of servitude, which is also why this is one of the hardest things to actually pull off Amen. for you and me being a servant to another brother or sister. Thinking about somebody other than ourselves, which is really hard. Can we agree with that? It's hard. I mean, we might have, listen, we might have highlighted seasons of thinking about other people. We might get by with doing some, some good stuff. I'm talking about a lifestyle of servitude where we don't really think about ourselves, where we more than often think about other people. And I think this is the ultimate struggle of Christianity. And this is also why I believe this is why the scriptures are there, that we can look at, that he set the stage for this. He's like, this is how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be living for yourself. You're supposed to be in, in, in connection with other people and assisting them in their walk also. Whoa. That's difficult because we don't think that way. We think, well... I'm going to get whatever I can, and I'm going to get out of here. Whatever y'all are doing is fine. Go do it. I'm going to get mine, and I'm getting out. That's a, that's a prerogative that we've been taught since we were kids. Just us. That's great. Y'all can do whatever you want. Just do it. If y'all make it, great. If you don't, I don't it don't matter. I, I'm, I'm going to make it. See, that's a real selfish perspective. But that is ingrained in us. It's in, it's in our flesh. This, that's a part of the old man, church. That's a part of the old man. If you have a if you have a strong desire to X people out of your life and a strong desire to watch out for only you and you alone, the old man is still alive. And he's breathing. 
listen, I'm telling you from my own experiences and, and from the, the base of the script, these scriptures and the things that we're talking about, this is stuff that we have to constantly fight against, that we have to be very aware of. We have to be very aware of the, of the stage that was set for you and I to carry on after Christ. Just carry on. And he told the disciples, this is how you're supposed to be. My goodness. We're, we're too independent. We're too independent. I didn't say there's anything wrong with independency. I said we're too independent. And you're going to see that here in section three, but we're not quite there yet, so let's keep moving. I'm on, I don't want to run out of time on us. Um, although Jesus is the Son of God, glorious and lifted up above all his creation, he became man, the God-man, entirely divine and entirely human. Yet he is also identified simply as Jesus. It is a human name to be combined with his position as Messiah and identity as God. These Jewish Christians, like their ancestors, had waited for the promise. Now, even amid struggles, they could rejoice that Christ had come. Okay, so I want to ask you the question here, and I normally don't do this, but I think it's a good question to ask. Why is it important to recognize both the humanity and the divinity of, of, of Christ? Somebody answer that. Somebody weigh in on that question. Why is it important to recognize both the humanity and divinity of Christ? Anybody want to take a shot? Well, if you don't recognize him as a human, then you'll be easy to give the excuse, well, it was Jesus, that's why he did it. <coughs> so if you only think of him as divinity, well, of course, divinity can conquer all temptation and sin, but when you think of it as a human, and he was living in the same body that we have right here, like, it makes it so much different that he would come from his throne and choose to be a human for our sins, and it takes on right. a whole brand new meaning. Yeah, it does. It changes everything when when the creator of the world comes down in human form for you. I mean, really, that changes everything. I mean, there's you think, well, there's something going on there. I mean, it's, there's something powerful about that. You have to have the realization that he was human, but yet God at the same time. He had a different set of temptations. He could have stopped whatever it was he could have. right there at that instance and called on the power that that would have nullified the other thing of the sacrifice right then and there. Right. So he was tempted on a whole nother level from what we, what I could even fathom. Yeah. I mean, he, he could call down, like it says, when he was getting crucified, he could call down legion of angels to save him, and, mm -hmm. but he didn't. Um, I always look at, uh, Pastor, go ahead. Like John said, he could have called on the temptation to see. Yeah. Stop now. Yeah. Quick. Anything. Because he didn't have the endurance. Yes. He had to resist it, even in human form. Yes. Because yeah. he had the power to say, no, that's it. Yeah. Right. He didn't do it. He had to resist it. And I think what's good, too, is if you look at the temptations that Jesus was tempted with when he was there, he was, these were temptations, uh, one specifically, of, of power and being a ruler. Uh, and, and the devil is saying, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me. What he was trying to do is to get, he was presenting an alternative, an alternative to the cross. The devil knew. That was the whole purpose of the temptation. We don't want you going to the cross because we know what happens if you go to the cross. If you make it there, then we got total redemption. So he wanted to get him to take an alternate to the plan. So that's when, when people have asked about that and even debated about that, they're like, what was the... I mean, what's, what good is it taking him up in a mountain, showing him all these, these places? It was an alternative. It was, it was like that, like the ultimate crucifixion and, and being able to be at the right hand of God and being a ruler. But it was the devil's version. 
which is what the devil always does, an alternate version. Well, if you're not careful, you'll miss this because some people use three things. The three things Satan offers. Yeah. 40 days. Right. 40 days of intense temptation. That being the main thesis of it all, which if you think about it, all is included in those three things. Sure. Give you the world, give you... But there was a... We can't even understand what was going on. The Bible doesn't clearly... If it talks about it all, we'd have to have three or more books. Yeah. Just of the temptation in the wilderness. I think so. so it's, it's extensive. That's Very extensive. Yeah. That's good. Very good. Okay. Let's keep moving. Through the first two chapters, the writer has developed the argument that Jesus is supreme. His greatness is unmatched. We agree with that. Formerly, the comparison was to angels and prophets. Now he turns to Moses, noting that Jesus deserves even greater honor than he. Hebrews 3, 2-3. To the Jews, there was no greater man than Moses. The writer does not criticize or downplay Moses. Rather, he points out that while Moses was a great leader entrusted with God's entire house, uh, the people of Israel... Jesus is far greater because he is the one who builds the house. And we've been talking about this, remember? In the, in the weeks past, you can't, you can't be greater than the one who created you. There's, there's, you can't do it. That's why we talk, we've been talking about how perverted the things are today. And they're coming up with artificial intelligence that's supposed to be smarter than humans. Okay, that's perverted. That doesn't even make sense. Because that gets away from the morality in the flow of things, you're not greater than your creator. But see, that's what man wants to believe, and that's the whole purpose of that, is that, well, you know, we could create something that could, that could be smart and outthink us. It's like, we guys are idiots. That sounds, sounds, yeah, sound, yeah, Tower of Babel all over again. It's like, what a great idea. Well, you got to understand, what, what did we say before? The problem is rooted in what? It's rooted in sin. You think, well, that's nonsense. They're just trying to, to make better. No, they're not. This stuff is rooted in some deep, perverted stuff. Deep. And what this place is going to look like in 20 years? Whew, man. What did, Nate, didn't we say that they've got, um, when COVID was going on in China, they had these uh, mechanical walking dogs that patrolled the cities and told everybody to get in their houses. If you haven't even seen any footage of that, it's pretty astonishing. These things would walk around and they had little intercoms. They were telling everybody to get in their houses. Now they got guns attached to them. Yes, they do. Yeah, believe that. That's that's crazy. But that's where we're at. That's that that's the depth of sin. In the in the in the there's no limit. And yet he also, far more, the one who built everything is God. Verse 4. And that's scripture. We just read that. Jesus built the house. He built the, the church. Now, yes, I, we're still believing the triune, but three but one, right? So, But God did what? He built everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's good. He said he built everything. So can you get any higher than that? No. You don't get any higher than the creator. He said he created everything. Well, you can't trump that. You can't beat it. Having established the superiority of Jesus above even the one deemed by those readers to be the greatest man who ever lived, the writer talked about the virtues of Moses. He was faithful in God's house as a servant, yet Moses was only a servant, but Jesus is in charge of God's entire house. Amen. In the New Testament, God's house came to include all who call upon the name of the Lord, and we together are God's house, through which he carries out his promises. 
like those Jewish Christians of the first century, we can keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Absolutely. Why? Because he's a rock. He's a rock. And we built our house on the rock. And when the winds hit it, and when they smash against it, and the waves hit, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. Okay, let's go to section three. We made it. I got seven minutes. <laughs> I think we can get through it. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 describes the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness. Verse 12 identifies the root of the problem, an evil and unbelieving heart. Such unbelief results in turning you away from the living God. Do you remember the story? I mean, we know that they were, that Moses was leading them, and um, the reason they ultimately did not take over the land of milk and honey when they were supposed to take over the land of milk and honey was because of unbelief. Amen. They just, and, and if you read through the story, it's easy to cast stones on them and think, well, I mean, look at the miracles. I mean, you split the, the waters and you walked across on dry ground. I mean, there was some amazing stuff that happened. And, and God gave them water and he gave them manna, but they didn't like the way the water was given and they didn't like the manna that was given. They didn't like it. And they just kept complaining and complaining and complaining to the point where God said, all right, you're stuck. Your whole generation is going to die here. And I'll take over the new generation. I'll do it to Joshua. Now, that's, that's hard. Just draw a line. Just draw a line. Because a, a lot of that reflects Christianity today. Just complain and complain and complain. Frustrated, frustrated. It's not what we want. It's not what we want. It's not what we want. And sometimes I wonder if God's just, whatever y'all want to do, fine. Whatever. If y'all want to go that way, go that way. I've been trying to get your attention forever, and you just don't listen. And I'm just paraphrasing. I'm not saying that God says that. It's, but to a God that loves us as much as he does, with the, the intensity and the passion that he loves you and I, can't you see him throwing up his hand sometimes with the way that we treat him? That's not biblical. I didn't say it was biblical. I just said, this is my perspective, me. Sometimes I think God throws up his hand and says, oh, my goodness. What are we going to do? Everything's going wrong. That's when you think that, too. Yep. So we, we've got to, we got to consider that we're the complainers. It's us. We're the ones that the problem is with. Why? Because we're because naturally we always think it's somebody else. It's someone else that's got the issue. It's somebody else that's got the problem. It's somebody else that caused the mess. And no one ever takes accountability. Listen, church. Judgment begins in the house of God. Where do you think it starts? Where do you think it, where do you think the whole thing is going to start? It's going to start with this house that was created by Christ. It's going to start with you and me. And that's a that's a that's a hard bit of that's a horse pill. It's a hard bit of accountability that we're going to have to call ourselves out and admit, oh, yeah, you know what? Problem's me. It's not, it's not, it's not, forget that. Yeah, I would look out there, sure. There's a lot of chaos going on. But far be it for me to start thinking that I'm higher than everyone else. The problem started here. Let's remember that. Okay, the phrase turning away is forceful, conveying a sense of rebellion against God. Unbelief entails rejection of God, and as a result, rejection of Jesus Christ is the means to reconciliation with God. Uh, meaning, like, there's another way. 
and there's not. The antidote to unbelief includes the fellowship of believers. Wait, what? Antidote to unbelief is fellowship. That doesn't even make sense. Actually, it does. Now, this is why I wanted to make it here. I wanted to make it to this point because I think there's some, there's some, some gems here or some stuff to really glean from this. You must warn each other every day, a reminder that every believer is vulnerable. Do you all agree that you're vulnerable? That we're all subject to making mistakes. But see, there's, there's something to that. There's something to that piece of the lesson. There's also something to the way that we respond. Because it's like, no, no, I'm going to go over here in my little corner, and I'm going to do my own little thing, and the rest of y'all can go and make mistakes or do whatever y'all want to do. I, like I said before, it's this mentality of, I'm going to go do me. And if you make it great, and if you don't, well, you know, good try. The Bible, it, it, it intertwines us. Accountability. I'm not saying you're, you have to live with each other. It's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to this, this accountability and that we're supposed to be admonishing each other and lifting each other up. It is very important that you are in the presence of other people that believe like you. It's very important. And I understand that we all have different lifestyles and we have different viewpoints and we have different perspectives. I understand that some people uh, in, enjoy uh, being alone maybe more than others. Some people are more, uh, more fellowship type people and some people are, are like, hey, you know, just don't bother me. That's, I'm not really trying to knock people's personalities. It's not what this is about. It's the principle that you are going to need your brother and your sister and you need them in order to make this run. We need them, whether you believe that or not. To whatever degree, you need to work that out with the Lord. To what amount, you need to work that out with the Lord. But you need each other. You're not going to get away from that principle. You can't. It's, that's irrefutable. You have to have each other. Don't think, well, you know, if, I have to, if, we're, if we have to have each other, then I need to, I can't cancel that out. I can't pretend like it doesn't exist, because it does. It's a thing. It's something. All right, I'm almost done. Um, Christians need each other through mutual support and love. God, <laughs> mutual support and love. Yeah, I told that to Sean because I've been going on about this for quite some time. That's the stuff that's been eating me up is love and how love works. Mutual support and love. God's people can avoid unbelief. Man. I thought it was just all about me, pushing hard, making it, you know? I thought it really wasn't about anybody else. It has actually a lot to do with who you surround yourself with. It has a lot to do with that. And find strength in the hope of God's promised rest. Note the somber warning. Here's the warning. We ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. Amen. Whoa. Meaning, it ought to disturb you. It ought to disturb you that somebody sitting next to you that professes may not actually make it. And it might be because I did not put my arm around them and say, come on, you can make it. Come on, you can do it. Come on, he still loves you. Come on, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. I was too worried about my world. 
I didn't think enough about putting my arm around them. This is what this is talking about, church, the support of each other. Okay. Clearly, the rest mentioned by the writer in Hebrews 4 9, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just skipping down. I'm just skipping down. Next paragraph. Let's keep moving. Uh, referred to something more than Israel's uh, entry into Canaan. Throughout the Old Testament, they had times of peace and prosperity, uh, yet they had not enjoyed the Sabbath rest spoken of here. All who have entered into God's rest have rested with, uh, from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. This is a spiritual rest, akin to Christ's promise in Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30. It's one of the reasons we celebrate the Sabbath. Yes, yes, Jesus is our rest. But if Jesus is our rest, this is New Covenant speaking here, if Jesus has become our rest, and that constitutes coming together and celebrating him on the Sabbath day. Some people try to dismiss the Sabbath. There's like, well, New Testament doesn't say anything about the Sabbath day because Jesus became our Sabbath. Are you, so what, do you want to skip church? So is that what, you're, is that what the argument is? We want to skip church now. Like only true Christians understand that. They don't. They don't have to attend church. My goodness. Let's come to the reality that if you believe in Christ, it constitutes coming together and being with each other. Don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Amen. All right? And we do it on Sunday. Saturday, whatever your Sabbath is. People get all twisted up about the Jewish calendar. When we are saved, we find blessed release from seeking salvation in our own works our own futile attempts to please God and can rest in the salvation brought about through Christ. As we come to grasp the rest found in God's grace, we can experience a restful peace in this life even as we look forward to eternal rest in heaven. And might I add, as we finish this, as we look forward maybe to more difficult times. Maybe as we look forward to things not going the way that we would like them to. Maybe. Maybe. But we rest in Him. Because he is your rest. Amen. We rest in each other. Because we need each other. Fundamental, right? That's, that's practical Christianity. It's practical stuff. And being chosen for this day and time that we live in, it may not be very appealing, but we're here. We're here. Accepted. We have a job to do. We need to make sure that we're shirt up with the Lord, but we need to make sure the people around us know the truth. Yeah. We need to make sure that the, the people sitting next to us in the church pew know the truth. Don't just assume. Don't just assume. If you see a brother or sister dipping off into sin or something that, that can cost them their salvation, warn them. Put an arm around them and warn them. I'm not, talking, I'm not telling you to get in people's business. I'm saying warn them. Because... We should all desire to see each other in heaven, not just make it ourselves. We're out of time, guys. God bless you guys.